Wine Tasting in Santa Margarita. Sip, sip, hooray! Hi and welcome to Sip, Sip, Hooray. I'm Mary Babbitt. And I'm Mary Orlin. And we just love to have fun with wine and we are so glad you've joined us. We are the podcast that tries to keep it real about the wine industry. Nothing fancy about us, but hopefully the information is good and we're glad you came along for the ride. Absolutely. And you might, if you've been listening to some of our podcasts lately, you might think that we just like hanging out in Paso Robles. And well, we do. <laughs> it's a really fun town with a lot of great wine. And um, we met one winemaker who's just fantastic we kind of fell in love with him and his place and he's realized his dream. He came up to Paso from Los Angeles mm -hmm. and, you know, with no experience making wine, a strong interest in farming. And I think he was making wine a little bit at home. He discovered this amazing property and just fell in love with it and decided this is it. The winery is called Kukula and that is not a cuckoo name. It's actually Finnish. And Kevin Husela is Finnish as well. And so it's an homage to his homeland. It means the high place. And when you go to the winery, you'll see that it is on a hill and it's just absolutely spectacular. We were thrilled to get to sit down with Kevin, taste some of his wines and have a chat with him in his barrel room. In his barrel room, which is in the winery, he built by hand. And when I say built by hand, <laughs> he moved like boulder by boulder by boulder, this amazing rock wall that came straight out of his vineyard that he planted. He's just a jack of all trades. Amazing that he's a designer, builder, winemaker, all around cool guy. Yeah. <laughs> are in the tank room at Kukula Winery with Kevin Usula, the owner and vintner here. And we are so um, delighted to be here. It's a beautiful spot west of Paso Robles in the um, Adelaide District right. and of the 11 AVAs in Paso Robles. Right. So Kevin, welcome to Sip Sip Hooray. Thank you. Yeah, cheers. Skipis. And, that's and what Finnish? did you say? That's Skipis, it's cheers in Finnish. Skipis, I like yes. it. Uh, so thanks for joining us. It's, You're welcome. Um, driving out here was a spectacular. It's a piece of paradise out yes. here. I, my eyes were watering. It was so beautiful. Yes. I mean, really, truly gorgeous. Yeah. And you have found a little slice of heaven out here. Yeah, yeah, How definitely. How did you end up out here? Okay, well, um, as short form as possible, I was making wine in my home in Topanga Canyon, Southern California, uh, which led to me wanting to plant grapes. Um, and before I actually purchased grapes, I had taken a trip with my wife to Provence in the mid-90s. And um, one of the places, my wife and I are really into food and wine. And so kind of the core of the mission, and we had our, our, our oldest daughter, who was 10 months old at the time. Um, so we wanted to kind of have a lot of fun, explore Provence, but do it in a way that's convenient with a little kid. And so we would do day trips, and that was really kind of... Um, uh, well, we set up the trip because of this uh, article that was in the Los Angeles Times, the travel section, that really kind of mapped out traveling with young kids and using a hub as a way to kind of explore wherever it is you're taking a vacation. And so we rented that very same house. And one of the stops that we made in um, Provence, one of the wineries we visited, was Bocastel, um, which uh, is in the Chateau Neuf de Pop, and certainly one of the seminal wineries in the Chateau Neuf de Pop. And um, uh, one of the patriarchs of um, Bocastel was actually pouring wines for us. 
and found out that I was making wine at our home in Topanga and I wanted to plant and he told us about his project, um, his joint project with the Haas family, uh, which of course today is Tablas Creek and they're one of the anchor uh, wineries in Paso. They're one of the, really kind of the major catalysts for Rhone winemakers um, in Paso. And um, anyway, within a week of, of that trip, I came here and it was my first time to really explore Paso. And I was smitten the first time, which you know just kind of led to this, um, as my wife says, hobby that got carried away. <laughs> it's a big hobby, Kevin. Oh, it's a huge hobby, yes, yes. But I can understand why you'd be smitten with this place. Yeah. It's just absolutely beautiful, tucked into this canyon. Right. And there's rolling hills. Your house is actually up on a hill overlooking the winery and vineyards. Right. Well, in fact, Kukula means the high place in Finnish. So it's, you know, apropos for where the house sits. So, the, you know, Finnish. And I'm Finnish. Yeah, yeah. So my, my parents, my dad grew up in Finland. He emigrated to Canada in his 20s back in the early 50s, and uh, my mom, who is Finnish but grew up in Canada, her family immigrated before she uh, was born, uh, she grew up in a Finnish enclave uh, in a, or outside of a, a city called Sudbury, which is 300 miles north of Toronto, which is where I'm from. Um, so half of my Finnish family is in Canada and half of my Finnish family is in uh, Finland. And um, in fact, Finnish was my first language. I learned English when I was five when I moved to this country. And you still speak Finnish? Well, I'm conversant. I'm not fluent. Uh, what do you want me to say? <laughs> It sounded really great. <laughs> I've already forgotten how to say cheers. <laughs> yeah, keep peace. Keep peace. Yes. Well, is it an even harder way to say it? It's hulikin gulikin. Hulikin gulikin. You did it perfectly. <laughs> awesome. It's sort of like, hello, good looking, or something like that. Yeah. Good looking. <laughs> Somebody suggested I make a label like a, with that name, but imagine an American trying to say that. Well, I like the way you taught us how to pronounce your last name. Yes. So, yeah, so my alma mater is UCLA, and uh, my last name is Yusila, so U-C-La. How's that for cool? So I got a real quick aside, if this is of any interest. I was born Yusila. We became citizens in this country when I was 16. My dad was Otto Yalmar Yusila. Otto is obviously the name of one of my wines. And Otto, A-A-T-T-O, changed his name to Otto, O-T-T-O, Johnson. Yossi means John, sort of, in Finnish. Okay. So I became Kevin Johnson for a number of years. So when I went to UCLA, I never made the connection. This is the funny part. Oh. UCLA, Yossila. So you were doing Johnson. And I was doing Johnson. And so when we had our first, our daughter, um, I was 36. So it was certainly years after UCLA. And it just dawned on me one day when somebody, because everybody always has a problem saying my last name. They just really mess it up. And I said, it's, you know, like... I, U-C-L-A, U-C-L-A. I thought, oh my God, that's my alma mater. How come I never thought of that? <laughs> that's, that's funny. So anyway, divine intervention, What's I guess. What's in a name? I love it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We're not going to forget how to say it. No, there you go. You better not. There's no excuse now. <laughs> so from Provence, Topanga Canyon, and Paso Robles. Um, you went to school at UCLA, but not for enology. No, I graduated with a degree in economics, and I did, and still do to this day. I manage money at Merrill Lynch. I'm a financial advisor. You do both. I do both. Yeah, I have to pay for this mess called the winery. So <laughs> yeah, the I, mess you I got yourself into. the mess I got my my hobby gotten carried away. Yes. So. so how do you go from managing money 
to making wine and making a wine that ends up on Wine and Spirits Top 100 list? Uh, dumb luck. I don't, uh, look, I'm a serious... I, I, um, when I dig into something, my wife is really right. I don't understand the meaning of a small hobby. When I'm passionate about something, I really, really dig in. And um, it's just the way I'm wired, and I've got kind of OCD perfectionist tendencies. So, you know, I, you know I, I'm not sure that I've necessarily arrived yet, but um, we're getting a lot of traction. So I don't know what the answer is. A lot of hard work. So did you have a vision or a dream before you started this project? Of doing a Why? project like this or this specific project? This or specific what? project or... Oh. Well, for years, yeah. I mean, this, this gets back to when I first started making wine in the early 90s um, that I knew I was kind of getting sucked in. And, um, you felt it. Oh, it was, it was impossible to pull back. <laughs> I was stuck in the vortex. I think my toe was already in. <laughs> Uh, and so my wife and I had talked about this really relatively seriously for a number of years, but it was always in the context of when the last goes to college, who, by the way, is going to college this September. And I'll be 60 in October, so um, thank God I didn't wait until now because knowing what I know, this is 15 years since the inception of this project, uh, it's a I love the business, but it's a brutally tough business, and the lead time before you get anywhere, I feel like we're just getting there now, is, call it 15 years, especially the way we did it, you know, with the infrastructure, owning the, the vines and, and, and uh, you know, the facilities and, you know, direct-to-consumer and, you we know. built this from the ground up. This building was not here. This, not this here. whole property was a walnut orchard when I first um, drove up orchard. to it. Yeah. Oh, okay. So what I was going to say is, uh, with respect to the drive mm -hmm. and how beautiful it is, the first time my wife and I saw this property was in October in the fall, and it was one of those seminal falls. And if you've ever seen walnut trees when they're um, uh, with fall colors, they are just a spectacular, can't even describe the color, yellow-orange, but they're just, just intense color. And it's just, the hill is blanketed with them. And so our property is very uh, mountainous and it's just covered, and at that point was really covered in, in walnut trees. So the first time we ever drove up to it, um, it was just buried in fall colors. And when I drove up, uh, it was a couple weeks later when I actually came up and had the courage to maybe address whether or not I would be seriously entertaining buying this product. Because it was, initially I thought it was just way too big a project to do. Um, so the real estate uh, broker was smart enough to have me come up there because he knew what a sucker I would be, I guess. Uh, and I drove up to the top where our house sits today, and uh, my heart was just pounding out of my chest. I just thought, oh my God, this is so beautiful. I have to have it. So the rest is history. And it's all downhill from there. <laughs> <laughs> you did it, yeah. though. So yeah. many people, yeah. uh, you know, yeah. want to do something like that, but whether it's resources or courage, they don't necessarily get there. So congratulations for Thank getting you. there. Naivety will get you everywhere. <laughs> and as yes. Mary said, you're making beautiful wines. Yeah, thank yeah. you. So from a guy who started in your garage, where did yeah. you start? Yeah, I started in my basement, my uh, basement. home in Topanga. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. And so I guess I'm curious how you learned, how you developed the palate, how did you... Uh, I, I jokingly tell people I drink a lot. <laughs> Which is true, I suppose, right? But that's I, the best way to learn. No, yeah. Well, how do you know unless you unless yeah. you taste the product, right? But I, I'm a I'm a pretty analytical guy, and um, um, I think I have a pretty good palate. Um, I know I have a, a really good palate. I've had really good olfactory 
capabilities. And I think that, you know, it's, it's like, you know, when we sat down, I was smelling, I still smell a slight mustiness in here. I'm mm-hmm. trying to figure out where it's coming from. Um, and I smell I, nothing. Yeah. Which, is like, which tells you about my palate. Like, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe not your palate, but certainly the olfactory component there, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. Right. You know, if my wife has a sponge on the sink and it's a little bit rancid because yeah. it hasn't been washed in a while, yeah. I'll smell it immediately and it drives mm-hmm. me crazy. So mm-hmm. I don't know. How does that lead to good winemaking? I guess um, I've got a good palate. Uh, I'm really an analytical guy and I'm serious about what I do. So I just, I taught myself over 26, 27 years to make wine, I guess. Uh, I think it shows in blending because you really need to have that olfactory That's sense right. to do really good blends. That's right. Well, I mean, look like at food, the same story, right? What makes food so good is the complexity of the things that go into food. Mm-hmm. But food isn't as good if you can't really have a really good sense of smell. And mm-hmm. it's the same thing with wine. Mm-hmm. Wine is a component of the meal and it's all about you know, the, 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 uh, the, the smell and the taste. Mm-hmm. Speaking of the taste, one of the things that I think goes into making your wine so special is the way you're farming your grapes. Oh, Can you okay. talk to us a little bit about yeah, that? Yeah. So you put a lot of effort into this. Yeah. Well, everybody puts effort into yeah, it, but, um, it's not mass produced. It's not mass produced, but, but specifically where we differ from a lot of people and it seems like there's maybe, maybe just because it's in my neighborhood, I'm starting to see it crop up a little bit more. We're dry farmers dry, yeah. and we're organic dry farmers. Uh, so for those that don't know what dry farming is, it literally means dry farming. We irrigate nothing. Uh, we rely 100% on rainwater. So you don't have any irrigation system. No, but actually, interestingly enough, um, we are, I, we didn't, I don't think we talked about this when you walked up, but um, there's a number of uh, blocks of vines that have been taken out. Mm-hmm. And we're dealing with a lot, like a lot of wineries, we're dealing with an issue called red blotch, which is a virus that um, is unfortunately, um, it doesn't kill the plant, but it affects the quality and the yield of the plant. Um, uh, so much so that I can't take a risk and ruin what good name I'm creating here. So we're aggressively replanting all of this. So, um, you know, even though it's just kind of a scary process and it's going to cost us a lot of money and a lot of time to do it, um, I'm not going to back off on the quality of what we're what we're doing and what we're trying to achieve, what our goal is. Um, but this whole thing has actually given me an opportunity to kind of rethink some things too. And so one of the things that is uh, a prevailing theme in the last 10 years, nine years in particular, I guess, is drought. And we've had seven out of nine years of drought. And so I am not one of those naysayers about um, global climate change. Uh, it's real, guys. <laughs> and um, I think that it's going to be more the norm, the drought environment than it is going to be raining environments. Uh, and so one of the things I've decided to do, and I've actually already implemented it on my first block that I've replanted, uh, is I did put an irrigation system in. Now, it's funny because it really was hard for me to come to terms with that because it's like almost... Um, well, it's almost criminal, you know? I preach dry farming, organic dry farming. Uh, but what I realized was having an, an emergency or a backup system in case isn't um, a violation of um, where you want to be or where you want to go, but rather a way to have a fail-safe if things get sufficiently ugly. And the other side of the coin that's more important ultimately is the economic viability of what you do. And this is a huge expenditure for us, for anybody in this business. So uh, what we will do is um, I've changed the density of planting from 370 plants per acre to 870 plants per acre. So it's more constant. Oh, wow. mm-hmm. it's, 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 it's more uh, plants per acre. Part of that is to devigorate the plant. 
um, which would be helpful because if you're tighter, you want to make sure your canopy isn't just going to be a huge bush. And does bush. that mean it doesn't need, the plant doesn't need as much water? No, it, it really doesn't uh, mean that the plant doesn't. I mean, well, yes. I mean, the air surface area of the root structure by virtue of the area that it's allowed to grow means that plant is going to uh, have, um, it's going to be a smaller plant and need less water. But the aggregate use of water for the acre probably doesn't change a whole lot, I guess, is one way to put it. Um, so, but I don't plan on using the water other than in the winter. Mm -hmm. And so what I will be is essentially the reserve. I will create the reserve if we're if we're deficient in the reserve requirements by the time we have bud break. A yep. uh, good example is a year ago we had five inches by the first of March, mm -hmm. and I got to tell you that scared me. I mean we've gone through some ten year ten inch years, you know, which weren't fun, and seventeen and eighteen inch years, which for a lot of people is a lot of rain, but for us it's almost half yet of what our average is. We're I think historically about twenty eight inches average. And um, so um, at that point, I was thinking, oh, my God, if it doesn't rain after the first of March and we have five inches, then what? Mm -hmm. And how much pressure does that put on the vineyard, especially when you have issues like red blotch or other potential viruses in terms of stressing and exaggerating, amplifying the problem? So I've decided that I put the water system in, and if we have a deficit situation by the end of February, first of March, I will add those reserves to the soil. Once we have bud break, then... It's, it's dry farm through the year. So it's your fail-safe. It's the fail-safe, yeah. 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 You know, it just goes to show you that it's agriculture, it's farming. Yeah. There's a lot of work, a lot of detail that goes into it that ultimately gets the grapes into the bottle. That's right. And um, it's not an easy thing. It's certainly not a, it's certainly an expensive thing. And we were talking earlier about how some people think, you know, we're in the wine industry, we're just, you know, having a great life, drinking wine all day. Yep. It's not as glamorous as it looks. <laughs> oh, there's more in the trenches than in the clouds, that's for sure. Oh, <laughs> all right, so, but the organic farming. Yeah. Philosophically, why is that important to you? And, well, I've just always been somebody who's, who, and in our, in our family, we just practice eating well, eating you know, food that isn't full of, you know, everybody eats uh, food that, you know, has some amount of preservatives. But to the extent possible, we eat all, you know, we're part of the CSA for all of our vegetables and we have been for many years. And it's just philosophically how we eat. We just want to eat really healthy food. And so making wine, you know, the, the product that goes into it, I want to make sure that there's nothing in the way pesticides, herbicides uh, that are on that plant. How much does that impact uh, you, um, you know, from a health perspective, I don't know, but I don't want to find out. Uh, so I just thought that it uh, was just kind of a natural thing to do. And it's interesting, I didn't really come here to be a dry farmer, by the way, yeah. but the more I thought about it as I kind of developed, I, I spent about a year after I bought this property and moved up here, um, a plan. W who are we going to be? How are we going to approach this? And um, uh, once I discovered dry farming and realized, wow, we can do this. We've got heavy clay and we've got porous rocks and we get sufficient rain in spite of the drought environment. On, on average, we have more than we need. Um, to me, organic farming is a natural extension of dry farming, or is it the other way around? You know, there's one. We are they, 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 yeah, yeah, right. It kind of it's a natural evolution. The whole idea of dry farming is, you know, kind of being a, a, a good steward of, of your land, right? And so why not be a good steward of your land by growing stuff without pesticides and herbicides? Mm -hmm. I love it. Yeah. So one thing we noticed when we were walking up to the winery is that there are several walls of lots and lots mm. of rocks. Yeah. How did that happen? Um, well, I'm a bit of a student of architecture. I'm a frustrated architect. 
that there was a time I wanted to be an architect. Probably still would like to be an architect, but for whatever reason, it didn't happen. Um, and so I've collected a lot of architecture books over the years, and particularly modern architecture. I love modern architecture. And um, so it was a combination of, you know, kind of, I just daydream about, I've built all the homes that I've been in. Um, and so I'm always dreaming about the next project, which scares my wife, because uh, I do want to do another one or two before I, I leave this planet. So she's probably freaking out if she hears this um, interview. He's not done yet. No. <laughs> oh, I'm definitely not done yet. So um, I've always had, what's the next dream project? What's the next dream project? This was like really the dream project. I mean, the scale of what we've done is far bigger than anything I've ever done. Um, and so on this one, I really wanted to approach it with a modern aesthetic. Um, and you know, the whole Finnish um, aesthetic is very modern as well. Yes. So it's kind of a natural, mm -hmm. yeah, is it in my DNA or is it just something that because I'm a Finn, I gotta be, I don't know, but I, I really love the modern aesthetic. Um, and so um, interestingly enough, during um, the beginnings of this, um, uh, thinking about doing this project, uh, I already knew of an architect in Aspen. Uh, his name is Scott Lindenau and his firm is called CVB Architects. This is a plug for Scott. Shameless plug. Anyway, I, he uh, was pretty good friends with one of my clients in my um, uh, private wealth uh, management business at Merrill, who has a home in Aspen. And he dripped on me a few times uh, before leading up to this project that I should talk to Scott. He does, does some really cool stuff. And I had seen some of Scott's work on, uh, it was an HGTV thing on his house in Aspen. And they maybe had met home in Western Design or Western Interiors, I think it's called. And we really liked what he did. And so I finally called him up and um, he loved the idea. And he was really doing, he's just exploded in his business, but he was, he was kind of stuck in Aspen. And so he just thought this would be a, a killer way to kind of branch out. And so it was kind of at the, at the beginning of his ascent uh, when we hired him. So the timing was really good. So how did that lead to the facade? Um, so I had seen a whole bunch of examples of the Gabion uh, structures in architectural books over the years, and I really liked it. So I forget if he brought it up or I said, I really like this idea. Oh yeah, it's called Gabion, G-A-B-I-O-N. And um, so I think historically it was always used for like um, uh, riverside uh, erosion control and mountain yeah. uh, erosion control, that kind of stuff. Um, and then it over time became used for kind of landscape kind of architecture and then ultimately houses and, 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 and structures for not really structural but for aesthetic and, and maybe thermal mass uh, reasons. So somehow we started talking about it and ultimately incorporated it in the building. He actually suggested I do it in our house and I said, well, that'll be a little too industrial. Yeah. So our house is full of rock. It's just as much rock, but it's in this kind of an old world, kind of what we call a sloppy grout with a lot of kind of um, aggregate in it. So it feels like an old world wall yeah, yeah. in a modern house with lots of glass, like our winery. So, but in this case, I thought, God, it would look really cool in the winery because it's industrial. And so why not show off that industrial aspect of it? And are these local rocks? And it's all off my property. For people, yeah. so you can't see this yeah. through the podcast. I'll have a photo on the website. Yeah, and it's just a bunch of rocks inside uh, a metal grating, right? Like yeah, it's yeah, it's just a, it's a, a um, why am I drawing a blank? It's a, it's, it's a galvanized. Stack. Well, they, they're not really, they're not really. Um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? A bag or a box uh, uh, of of meshed wire, but it's they're like panels that they're put together by spring spring wires that are just like these coils that you spin at the intersection of all the panels. Okay. And so I kind of built them, these panels, into these boxes and then secure the boxes to the wall 
fill the boxes. They're not really boxes, right, because there's a flexibility to them, but uh, fill the boxes with, with um, stone and then just kind of build it up from there. So, Beautiful. Yeah. It's a fantastic and effect. when you say you filled them, did you do it yourself? Oh, yeah, I built the wall. Yeah. Come on. Seriously, yeah. That's unbelievable. Dude, yeah. These are massive. Yeah, you'd have, you'd, you'd have to see this to really appreciate because I figure there's about a quarter of a million pounds of rock on that Whoa. wall. You are OCD. That's I am OCD. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's insane. Yeah, well, I'm I got to so tell you, and I, and I built that, I built the, the, the stone walls, the Gabion walls in July and August, which is like the yeah. hottest time of year. And I remember thinking as I started it up, started out in the far corner of the building so that if I screwed up, at least it wouldn't be so obvious or I could take it apart easily what? and nobody would notice. And then I kind of, as I felt courage, I kept moving this way to, you know, toward the tasting room where it's more and more visible to the, to the, to the visitor. Um, and I really realized very fast that it was actually relatively simple, but it's a very arduous task. And, and so um, it took me two months and, you know, and then there was this whole period that when I was building and it was like, oh my God, this is massive rock wall and this is going to look like this is kind of a monolithic mess here. And I was like, what am I doing? I sure hope this works out. But what was really interesting, as I got higher and higher with it, it actually pulled, you know, a structure at the highest point is 26 feet high. So it's a fairly sizable, massive building. But as you know, the backside is buried. It's 12 feet underground and the sides are tapered. And so the building kind of is diminished by its being sub somewhat submerged in the hillside. And so although the walls on the north face, which is where the Gabion is, is really massive, it had a, a, a you tell me if you disagree, but it, it, it feels like it pulls it down. It actually makes it part of its place. Mm -hmm. So it kind of, it, it became more cohesive with its environment once it was finished. Absolutely, I yeah. agree with that. Sure, it feels a, a part of this place. Yeah, it definitely fits in. Oh, cool. To the, yeah. the hillside. Well, especially since it's rock right off. I mean, I, I dug it from the hills right behind the building, right? So, <laughs> All right, so it belongs you, here. So you built houses, you built the winery. Let's talk about your wine. You've got a couple bottles here. Cool. Actually, we got three bottles. Yeah, you poured a white for temp us here. Yeah. What, what is this? I've already drunk mine. So, <laughs> see, I'm good at drinking and talking. This is why I own a winery. <laughs> No, 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 I'm good. I'm good. So the so we only make one white, and the white is called Valea. And uh, oh, did I say Kukula means the high place? Yes. Okay, I yeah. forgot. I just want to make sure that we didn't fin uh, forget that. Valea is another Finnish word, and it means um, fair, blonde, or bright. And this is. Yeah. <laughs> it is really blonde, nice. and it's bright. It's yeah. nice, fresh, and crisp. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, so that's um, um, Grenache Blanc, Roussan, Viognier, in that order. And as I recall, I don't have the bottle here in front of me. It's 43% uh, Grenache Blanc, 29% Roussan, and 28% uh, Viognier. I like the acid balance. It's Thank really you. nice. Thank it's you. Not, some, some whites I get scared are going to be a little sweet, and this is just lovely and crisp. And Thanks. So we, in our uh, uh, wines in general, we, we try to be really finesse and elegant in what we do. In our reds, we um, only do um, uh, our reds in, in French oak, but in our whites and our rosé, our white and our rosé. Um, we only do it in stainless steel. I picked the grapes early, 22 and a half, 23 bricks kind of territory. So they're, they're not going to be big alcohol wines. Mm -hmm. um, and I ferment them, f uh, and I do this, what I call a progressive field blend. Because they're picked at different times, they're not, it's not really a, a true field blend. But I pick it, press it, put it in one of these tanks that's right behind you here. Um, and then a couple weeks later, that'll say the Viennese first, I'll pick, 
press and add the Grenache Blanc, and then I'll pick press a few weeks later um, and add to the blend that I've already created. So um, they're all kind of fermenting together, and I keep a, um, I keep a chiller on it so that I keep it in like in the mid fifties, so that even if it's fermenting, it's just percolating. It's not really uh, getting crazy uh, fast. And I think that serves two purposes. One, it allows me to co-ferment to a large degree, number one. But number two, I think when you keep your temperatures cool for a long period of time, you really retain the freshness, the fruit, the acidity of the wine. And we don't let it go through malolactic fermentation, so it doesn't have that kind of roundness that you get when, when wines go through mallow. Um, and we do native yeast. So what do you like about being a winemaker? Um, you know, it's funny. It's hard to answer. Um, I love wine. I really love wine. You know, my, my kids, the other night, one of my boys was home to visit for a few days, and he said, you just can't go a night without your wine, can you? I was like, no, I'm sorry, I can't. <laughs> <laughs> I love wine. So first and foremost, I love wine. Uh, I'm really curious about wine, and I am an analytical guy, and when I get into something, I really get into it. So I just got sucked in. But it's it goes beyond that. I'm, um, I, I built all my homes, and I... I love building things. Um, um, so I think the stuff that really turns me on is ultimately the physical manifestation of my work. If I can have a building, I can have a vineyard, I can have a bottle of wine in my hand, um, to me that's just really, it's palpable. It's like I've done something. I've left you a mark it. or yeah. something. How about you've made it? I mean, you could be a failure and do some really no, cool I'm stuff. A, but you, you Oh, I made it. Oh, there you go. Yeah, okay, there I you go. I you made it uh, in the yeah. other sense of the term yeah. as well, but no, I'll leave that there. But yeah. you, you handcrafted that's it. That's right. You created yeah. something. And I'm, I, I'm, you know, I, I'm a real, I, I love art. Uh, I love music. And I, I'm neither an artist. I shouldn't say I'm not artistic. I suppose I am on some level. This is art. Right. This and the glasses uh, are well, and just the aesthetic of the building and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. I there's a component of art, but I'm not an artist. I'm not a musician. I'm envious of people that can do that. It's just creating something from nothing, and that's the ultimate expression of creating something from nothing. Mm -hmm. So, I, I guess it's really that. I, I love being outdoors. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I've worked with a suit on for most of my career, and you know, it's been a wonderful career. Uh, but the end game is this, and this is the kind of stuff that really turns me on. I had a, when we were making wine in Topanga Canyon, we actually had a commercial label there for about five years, and we sold 60 cases or so of our product from the vineyard there. And I would have a, um, a wine release party, always around June, um, uh, while we were there. And I remember one night, it was a, just a beautiful sunset evening at our home in Topanga Canyon and we overlooked the ocean in Topanga spot. and it was just it was it was a killer place to be and so some guests were leaving and I was standing at the deck overlooking our uh, you know the property and probably had a few drinks of wine so I was feeling very philosophical and somebody was commenting to me about how beautiful it was here and I, I kind of reflected there and I said you know, I've been really successful in my career, and I can't say that I'm really happy. And I do nothing but throw money down the drain in this winery, and I totally dig it. <laughs> what is wrong with me? <laughs> so, so, I don't know. Ask a winemaker why they like making wine or why they like being a winemaker. I think it's, it's, it's in your DNA. And also, mm -hmm. the buildings you build, they're for you. Right. Um, but you get to hand people That's this right. bottle, they can take it home, they can have That's an right. experience, they can right. have memory. Right.
Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's 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 really you know, certainly one of the rewards of making wine. Aside from getting you know great reviews, is really the feedback you get from the customer. I get emails and calls and even letters written to me sometimes about, you know, I just had a bottle. They invariably I get pictures, you know, in a text or an email. They send me a picture and it's in, you know, it's their honeymoon in Tahiti or something, and they brought a bottle of Kukula with them and they're so telling me what a special evening it is. Like, oh wow, that is really cool. So you probably don't have time to be on the road selling your wine. Oh, I am, sure. You do that too? Well, I just got back from Finland a week ago. I was I, We rolled out our wines in Finland, and uh, yeah, I'm... How do you manage that with the money managing? The no, money? Sleep. <laughs> yeah. no sleep. Yeah, so over. Yeah, I'm a, yeah. <laughs> you sleep and you die, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I don't do a lot of um, uh, travel with respect to that, um, uh, but a lot is a relative term. If I had to summarize, you know, how much am I on the road selling wine, you know, it might amount to, at this point, six, eight weeks out of the year. It's not huge, a huge part of the year, um, but um, it is becoming a bigger part. I mean, I'm almost all direct-to-consumer, so I am distributing in Finland, which is a little unusual. I have a little distribution in Southern California. I have a little distribution. by direct-to-consumer? Oh, I, that says um, I, don't, I don't have a distributor uh, for the most part. I sell really through the tasting room. So 95% of our sales are essentially through the tasting room or online orders from our website uh, and or club, which of course is typically derived from people that visit us. So 75% of our total business is, is, is roughly wine club. So um, I don't do a lot of distribution, but um, you know, the, the, the realities of this business too are that, um, especially running two careers, uh, if I'm ever to have just one career, it'd be kind of nice to launch Kukula a little bit faster. Um, and so that kind of means raising awareness by making more people have the bottle in their hands and distribution is the natural way to do it. Um, and so I am pushing on that pedal, but I'm trying to do it in a really selective way. Finland, obviously, it's my homeland. Um, so I really, I really want to be I in Finland. Sure. Yeah. And, and it was really, really fun. Were they receptive? It. Oh, it was a huge reception. Yeah, I was, I was beyond thrilled. It was a lot of fun. And it wasn't just relatives. No, it was just, <laughs> oh, that's so funny. So we, I did do two dinners, and there was 20, 20 plus people. So it wasn't a huge attendance at each of the dinners, but it was, I think, a week and a half or two notice. We didn't really, uh, they didn't really get the, the word out fast enough. Um, but we had 20 some uh, guests at each of the two dinners, and I think at one dinner there were four relatives, and the other there were six. Um, so yeah, but it, I, I, I kind of talked that up to. I'm a good networker, right? I'm, uh, yes. uh, and it was actually friends of friends, even in the United States. So, mm. uh, in fact, somebody from Stockholm came to the dinner in Helsinki. So, so I was actually able to attract people in Finland to come to my dinners. An but international draw. It was yeah, it was pretty cool. <laughs> You'll just yeah. have to go back and do it again. Well, they're talking about me going back in December to do some winemaker dinners and some presentations. So, uh, you know, if we can get a couple, three of them, maybe three or four together, I would definitely go back for that. What a fun way to honor your parents. Oh, yeah, so for really, sure. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So you have but, three children. i got three kids, yeah. And they're 22? Uh, 24 is the oldest, 22 and 17. 17. Yes. Yeah. And do you see any of them following your footsteps no. in the... No. No. I mean, hey, anything's possible. I started this business when I was 45, so you never know. But yeah. I'm also an old dad, you know. I'll be 60, like I said. My youngest is 17. And so you have to think about this in realistic terms. In 10 years, I'll be 70. If there's no real sense that somebody has a, a real interest, uh, any of them have real interest in this, then, you know, I'm not sure I'm going to hold my breath any longer. But 
my two oldest kids are really seriously in the sciences, um, and they're they're just taking off in their careers, and I can't see them um, doing this. And my youngest is starting college, and he's a computer science geek. Uh, so you know, I I I wouldn't hold my breath. Well, I love that how fun that you can celebrate what they're into and cheer them on as opposed to saying, oh, yeah. no, 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 I need you down yeah. here. And, you know, I love that um, you want them to find their passions. Well, that's right. Yeah, you know, it's um, the, 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 the mantra I've had for my kids um, has always been figure out the hit when I say it this way because they, they think Tur- what turns you on um, is, yeah. I don't know, is such an old, <laughs> it's a 60s, 70s say. <laughs> but I say figure out what turns you on and figure out how to make money doing it. Right? It's the passion first, and then is, is it economically viable? You know, if being an artist isn't economically viable, well, maybe you can figure a way to kind of leverage that, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, um, you know, anyway, so I want my kids to pursue their, their, their passions. Um, and um, this other one we have on the table. Oh, we is, didn't pour the others. Oh, and this is an homage to your father. Oh, yes. Family, yeah. yeah, and actually, this is the 15 Octa, which is gone. Which uh, um, is the wine that was named in the top 100. By from, One Spirits. Yes, and got yes. a 93 point. Yes. Yeah, I was uh, thrilled. I, it was unexpected that I got this. How Not did you th- find out about it? How, how did you? They emailed me. Yeah. And I thought I was reading it wrong. <laughs> I read it like three or four times, and then I sent it to, uh, uh, to our marketing people, and I said, is this, what it's saying? is this saying what I think it's saying? <laughs> they said, oh, my God, yeah. That's so cool. It was very cool. So they we were pretty thrilled. you, like the Nobel, you know? <laughs> you yeah, well, it's a, call, it's, like a, it's, it's a pretty high honor, but it's not that high. <laughs> All right, so, yeah, Otto is my father's name, A-A-T-T-O. And um, Otto means Eve. My father was born on Christmas Eve, oh. and uh, Yolo Otto is Christmas Eve. Yolo yeah, and so my dad was a Yolo Otto baby, and um, this is an unusual blend. It is uh, 48% Cunois, 38% Morved, and uh, 14% Grenache, and um, it's really an exotic wine. I, I just. Well, I like all my wines, but this is there's something very unusual about this. It's it's exotic. It's it's uh, baking spices. It's uh, kind of like an old world Pinot funk to it. It's uh, very elevated spiciness, but a really kind of a voluptuous um, aromatic to it. Wow, it is. It's very different, but and it's very appealing. This wine has been sold out now for um, well. The top 100 happened in November, mm-hmm. um, so it sold out by December. It is a really voluptuous wine. Mm. I mean, it it's uh, it's one of those eye one of those wines where it almost makes your eyes kind of like spin in the back of your wow. head, kind of going, "Wow, what mm. is going on here?" Mm. It is it's it's a spectacular nice. wine. That makes me do the happy dance. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, you know you have a winner. Mary mm. Orleans going to give you the happy dance. <laughs> oh, that's I, really great. I'm loving this really wine. Nice. Yeah. Whoops. So what are you pouring for us now, Kevin? This is the 15 Pas de Deux. And uh, Pas de Deux? Mm-hmm. What's a Pas de Deux? It's a ballet move. There you go. <laughs> it's a dance for two, a step yes. for two, right? And I call it Pas de Deux because it's Grenache and Syrah. And I think that Grenache and Syrah in this glass are dancing beautifully together. Aww, I love that. 
So uh, thus the name. Not a finished name, but it's, I think it's apropos. Um, and this is a 6634 blend of Grenache and Syrah. This has a beautiful floral nose. Yes, the very kind of floral, herbal, earthy quality yeah. to it, doesn't it? Yeah. Makes some sage. And very, yeah, very definitely a sage, kind of a mint. There's a little bit of a, it's not coming out right now, but a bit of a creme de mint kind of a, a flavor and aromatic to it. Ooh, that's really lovely. Oh, it's just beautiful on the palate. It's just, it's soft and velvety. I was going to say yes. velvety for yes. sure. That's really nice. Mm. But it's got some nice grippiness, but not too, yeah, much, not too much, right? Let's, nice mid-palate spiciness. Let's know the wine is there on your tongue. That's right, mm -hmm. yeah. A lot of layers happening with mm -hmm. it, yeah. Oh, that's good. And the, the varietals you make, is that because of the... Because uh, of where you are, or these just favorite wines. Like, how did you choose what? To uh, yeah, I've got a bit of um, maybe a bias uh, to Rhone varietals, but I drink wines from all over the world. Mm -hmm. So it isn't like I love Rhones and nothing else. Uh, I love lots of wines, and you know, uh, if I could make a whole bunch of other varietals, I would. But um, I believe, and certainly Tablas is here because of their belief and uh, other people um, of significance who've come here 10, 15, 20 years earlier than me, that this is really, genuinely amazing Rhone country. Uh, there's a fair amount of debate between Bordeaux and Rhone, and you know, there's some people who are making great examples of some Bordeaux's here. I've got a good friend who's starting a project, not starting a project, he's well into it, and um, he's just rolling out his first wines, and they're exceptional in, in their, their Bordeaux blends. Uh, so I know you can make amazing Bordeaux here, but I, you know, you you probably both been to to the Rhone region. This looks like the Rhone region. It, does. it, it does. feels like the Rhone region. Mm -hmm. It, you know, the the it's it's very very similar terroir, um, and um, and you know, same soil that really kind of it's the soil really that's key. Well, I think it's a lot of things. It's yeah, a but lot we of we and then it's the temperatures. It's right. The, it's a combination of everything, that which encompasses the terroir, right? Yeah, but, right. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you hear a lot about it. And, you know, okay, I'm again a, a self-taught winemaker, so I can't really speak to this in any specificity. But um, you know, you hear a lot about the calcareous soils, the limestone, mm -hmm. and you know, it creates stress, which creates more intense fruit and therefore wine. And you know, I believe it. I mean, there is an intensity, um, and I think you know, it's farming. Well, yeah, it's interesting because I believe that there is even more intensity because of the dry farming. Yes. Um, but there's some debate about that. I've read some about that, and science sort of says that you can't really bring, you can't really bring the minerality of the soil up into the fruit. I'm not sure I believe that, but you know, how can I argue with these guys? So, but I really feel it. I, there's, the, the, the wines I make from my property, there's a real signature to them, and I think that's really. Uh, defined by this kind of limestone, uh, yeah, calcareous soils, and I think that's part of the fun about wine too. I mean, it's just you know some of these things. How do you explain that mineral? Yeah. Milk? How do you explain this? Or that How do you taste? do this? Yeah. yeah. I don't know. It yeah, happens. It's not like you put it in the glass. It's just there after fermentation. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's kind of the magic of wine. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, as a guy who is a self-taught winemaker and who did this on the side and continues to kind of do it on the side, what advice or um, words of warning maybe would you give other people listening who want to do it too? All right. So my quick answers are many years ago, 
I don't even really know Brian Babcock, but I used to bug Brian Babcock when I was in Los Angeles and I was starting to do this because in Los Angeles there's nobody to talk to. And He's somehow, a winemaker in Santa Barbara County. That's right, Santa Inez area. And um, he's exceptionally uh, successful at what he does. And he probably won't even remember this, but it's got to be 25 years ago. And somehow I was picking his brain probably for the fifth or tenth time. And and um, he made a he made a comment to me. He said, "Okay, just stay where you're at. This is the perfect size. Just a hobby. Don't get serious about this business." So is that my advice? On some level, yes. Um, this is a seriously tough business, and you darn well better love it because it is really, really a difficult business. So, uh, you know, I think you know who you are. If you can't help yourself, you better do it because you'll regret it. I guess that's my advice. You know. Go, go for what turns you on, what I told my kids, right? And maybe find a mentor like you had in Brian. Yeah, well, he wasn't was so much a man. I suppose he was to some extent, but yeah, I, I probably felt guilty after bugging him too many times. But <laughs> I've had lots of really good... Do you have any mentors yes, you were learning? Yeah, I've had lots of mentors. You know, there's um, uh, she's become a good friend of mine, Helen Keplinger, Keplinger uh-huh. Wines, up in, uh, up in uh, Napa area. She's an exceptional winemaker. She's yes. gotten huge... Huge reviews. And she um, makes her own varietals too. That's right. Yeah, she she makes cab as well, yes, she does. but she's focused on Rhones as well. Uh, Tasha Boffman was introduced to me by um, uh, Helen Keplinger, and Tasha's here local. And uh, I don't know Tasha. Yeah, Tasha's actually worked for years for uh, Meridian, the corporate structure, and she's starting her label called Concur now. Uh, but a really good winemaker, uh, Stefano Seo, at Love on Tour. Um, super helpful. Um, it's neat to hear that the wine community was willing to help out someone coming into it, oh, yeah. you know, started yeah. in this basement. You know, the thing that, you know, uh, really separates what I do in my other business versus this is this is a super fraternal business. And I think that even across the industry, but certainly in my myopic perspective, you know, in Paso, um, we all, for the most part, take the perspective that um, helping each other elevates everybody else, right? It, the flow, what was it? The, the rising tide. Rising tide, right? And I, and I really believe that. I mean, um, there's always some level of competition, but you know, if you're a serious winemaker, or a serious grower, or both, and you call people who are serious about the business, they know you are, and they're going to be more helpful, uh, willing to help you. And uh, that's what's really cool about this business is it's a, the fraternal nature of it. It's a family. It's pretty cool. Well, yeah. you have made a, a great contribution to the wine family. Oh, well, I'm just <laughs> nicking the surface, but... <laughs> Your wines are delicious. <laughs> and you. Uh, to find you, again, you're yes. in, uh, west of Paso Robles. West of Paso Robles. Yep. On Chimney Rock Road. On Chimney Rock Road. A very twisty, curvy, but beautiful drive. And if you're coming from Paso and you see the Adelaida Schoolhouse, we overlook it. You'll just look past it and you'll see a very modern house and winery. And Do people need an appointment to taste here? Uh, it depends. We do two uh, tastings. We do regular tastings Friday through Sunday, 11 to 5. Um, and if you want to have what we call a reserve tasting, which is our latest releases and allocated wines, uh, we do that by appointment. Um, it's a little higher cost, but it's a wonderful experience because you get me to tell you every little anal detail of what I do, as long as you listen. Um, and uh, any groups are six or larger, we do require an appointment. Mm-hmm. So we try to really create an intimate environment here with people visit. Yeah, and it's so beautiful, so worth the drive. Yeah. Um, and people can find you on the internet. Those not in California and yep. not visiting Paso Robles can find you on the internet. Or if yeah. they're in Finland. 
Well, there you go. Well, yeah, soon to be all over Finland. Yeah, so, yes. Well, cheers. Thank you. Yeah. Cool. Thank you. Well, Kukula Winery is such a beautiful place. It's hard for us to leave. It absolutely is. It's spectacular out here. The the beautiful rolling hills, just a wonderful, gorgeous spot, and the wines are just as lovely. They're wonderful. It is a bit of a drive, we will warn you. There's a lot of twists and turns, but it is worth the journey. It is. It is. And that's going to do it for our show today. Thanks for coming along for the ride. Absolutely. Um, If you really like what we're doing, please share it with your friends and family. And to be sure that you don't miss another one of our super fun episodes, go to our website, sipsipparaypodcast.com, and subscribe to the podcast. That way, you'll automatically know when we drop an episode. Absolutely. Get on board. Follow us on the gram and Facebook, and be sure to tag us at Podcast, and that way we can stay in touch with you. Thanks for coming along, and we'll see you again next time. Sip, sip, hooray. hooray!